This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. We're very happy to be hosting Zoketsu Norman Fisher, who is the, I don't even know what all I can say about him, poet, <laughs> author, uh, Zen master, long-term uh, practitioner in, uh, he's the founder of the Everyday Zen Foundation, and has groups of uh, sanghas all over not only this country, but in Canada and in Mexico as well, and maybe even beyond that I'm not even sure of. Um, so we're very fortunate to have him come here to Texas. He's doing a, uh, he was in San Antonio the last few days, now in Austin, and going down to Houston Zen Center right after this afternoon's workshop is over. So anyway, thank you all very much for being here, and please enjoy, enjoy uh, Norman while he's here. Morning, everybody. Morning. Well, uh, hi. I'm very happy to be here. I really like the Austin Zen Center a lot. Maybe I'll move to Austin. That could be a good idea. And uh, I, I'm so impressed with that Buddha on the altar, it's so beautiful. And, and, and he has a proper halo even, which is really lovely. And I also was impressed with the Buddha over in uh, San Antonio, and they told me that, that that Buddha came from here. So this is definitely a place that manufactures excellent Buddhas. <laughs> and uh, seriously, uh, I really appreciate that you're all here because uh, showing up, being here today, is about 90% of the work of awakening, actually. The other 10%, yes, takes a while, but 90% is, they say, you know, in the tradition, 90% is the fortunate karmic roots to be able to encounter the Dharma and be moved to want to learn more. That's 90%. So, whenever I address a group like this, I am aware that I'm addressing a group of 90% Buddhists. <laughs> so I'm kind of awed and humbled by the experience. I was telling some people uh, last night, I guess, that um, I have a good friend who's a, a poet. <clears throat> he's, he's a really uh, great poet. He actually, his book, uh, what's the name of it? Being With, I think is the name of it. Won the Pulitzer Prize this year, so he's a really great poet. Um, Forrest Gander. And uh, so he uh, was reading two of my books at the same time, side by side. One was a recent poetry book, a 2018 poetry book called Untitled Series, Life As It Is, which is a serial poem of about 135 poems, which is very fragmented. It's telling a story 
but with most of the parts left out. So you read the poem and you don't really know what's going on. <laughs> there are no complete sentences, just a couple words here and there. You know something's going on, but you don't know what it is, as Bob Dylan said. <laughs> just like life, you know. You're pretty sure you're alive and something's going on, you just don't know really what it is. So anyway, he read that, and he also read this book that I'm talking about today, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. And he wrote me an email, and he said, uh, oh, the poetry book is wonderful, blah, blah, all the reasons why he liked it for its open-endedness and its mystery, and so on and so on and so on. And he said, but boy, did I hate The World Could Be Otherwise. <laughs> I really, I really, really, really didn't like it. And I hope we can still be friends, but then he went and told me all the reasons why he didn't like it. And they were really good reasons, which started out with his uh, tremendous antipathy toward religion in general. He said, think of all the things that have been done, you know, in the name of religion, that religion has done. We can just start with the Crusades, you know, and go on from there. And the Buddhists are not immune to this, consider the Rohingya tragedy today. So, but never mind that. Consider all the young people, kids, who grew up in churches that told them, you know, shut up and don't think anything and don't ask questions and don't look at who you really are, be who we tell you to be. And that's terrible, and that's religion, and that's what religion always does. And that's what you're doing in your book. You're so preacher, you're telling me what to think, you're telling me what to do, you're telling me how to look at the world. You don't do that in your poetry. I love your poetry, but in this book you do that, and so I really, really, really don't like that. <laughs> and I was so happy with that. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's exactly right, yes. All the things you say are entirely true. And isn't it a shame that this treasure of human beings, this need that human beings seem to have always in every single community, wherever there's more than one person, you know, there's a religion. There's some effort to imaginatively project some kind of story or song or some impulse which I remember feeling as a child, you know, to reach out to understand a world that is essentially baffling. And not only is it baffling, but it's a hundred percent guaranteed that it will do you in in the end, right? Right? This is being human, living in a baffling world which will kill you. <laughs> you can't live in that world without either denial and tremendously, you know, overcoming who you really are and not looking, not thinking, not feeling, distracting or something, or Alternatively, having some imaginative, open-ended 
impossible to realize religious quest to understand this human life. We've always done this. And it's a shame, you know, that religions that are, that are, that are about that do become uh, forces for uh, social control and eventually uh, even violence, as we, as we see so much exactly in our world. It's too bad. It doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. And, and, and maybe neither, not, not, not one of us can overcome these big forces that have shaped what religion is, but we can overcome it within ourselves, for sure. We can find uh, a, a way of spiritual practice that is opening for ourselves and imaginative, and that we can establish communities like the one that we have here that's based on that way of understanding spiritual practice. The wildness, the imaginativeness of spiritual practice, the wildness and the imaginativeness of every one of our hearts can be honored and supported in a community in which that's the understanding. And, and I think that, the, in general, I would say that the Buddhist communities in the West are mostly that way, partly because we don't really know anything about Buddhism. And <laughs> it, comes to us, it comes to us, you know what I mean, culturally, uh, it's, it, it comes to us denatured of its cultural roots in Asia. You know, if, if you're Japanese, uh, like I, I, I was just in San Antonio staying with friends, and, and she's Japanese, and, uh, but she's Christian, she's Catholic. But since she's Japanese, she's Buddhist. Because being Japanese is being Buddhist, no matter what your religion is, because it's so embedded. We don't have that, so we innocently are practicing Buddhism. We're not knowing what we're doing. But at the same time, oddly, probably, understanding the impulse better, just because we're innocent and ignorant. It's kind of a wonderful thing. So that's what uh, this book is about, because uh, I guess probably every human generation thought that uh, it was living in desperate times, probably. You know, every generation thought, oh my God, the end is near. In Europe, during the plague, you know, about every third person perished. And they thought God had pronounced the end of the world. And they were pretty convinced. And uh, Buddhism says that the, there's a, a, a Dharma declining age, you know, at the end of the world. And they thought that was going on in the 13th, 14th century. So we're not the first people to think, oh my God, we're doomed. Except now we we know we're really doomed <laughs> because we're smarter than all those other people and we have scientific data that backs up our being doomed. That's a serious matter. You know, I don't mean to make a joke out of it. It's a serious matter. And so I, I really felt like I wanted to write this book to say that in these times when not a single person can afford not to be in one way or another an activist, and there's many ways to be an activist. To me, 
taking care of your dying mother is being an activist. Raising a child with love is being an activist. Taking care of your Zen center is being an activist. Marching on the street is being an activist. Working for political candidates is being an activist. Nobody in this time can afford not to be an activist. And in these times when we have um, such a collective thought of fearfulness and despair over what seem to be really dark politics and, and you know, bad environmental predictions, we can't face this and remain active without spiritual practice. I think everybody needs now spiritual practice. And, and, and of course we can't expect everybody to join churches and go to Zen centers, but everybody has to find some way of serious, committed spiritual practice that works on one's own attitudes, deepest attitudes and spirits, and gives us a sense of hopefulness in a sense that there's work to do, it's joyful to do it, when we do it together we're happy, when we do the right thing it's good, we know it's good, we don't need to see immediate results, we know good is good and bad is bad, we avoid what's bad, we do what's good, we do it together, we're happy, we need that spirit, we need a, a spiritual practice perspective if we're going to uh, Go, go forward as a human family. And, and, and it's the best moment for that. Because this is the moment when finally, finally, after all this time of oppression of this group against another, we're finally ready, even though we're quite contentious about it at the moment, we're finally ready to say, we have to include everyone. There's no other way. We have to include everyone with equal respect. So it's a good time. But we really need our, and, and you know, our great religions, as bad as they've been, <coughs> have such treasures in them. Because the mystical side, the, the spiritual side of every religion has tremendous riches. Certainly Buddhism does. But so does every other tradition, if we look for it. So we need, we can't throw away like, you know, like my friend Forrest, maybe it's okay for him to throw away all the religions. I don't mind because he has poetry, right? He's like a full-time poet. And for him, that's a spiritual path, which he will say if you ask him, you know, he'll say that. So he, it's okay for him, but for someone who doesn't have that kind of spiritual path in the arts or in some other way, it's really good to have access to the world's great religious traditions. We need it. We really, really need it. And, and I, So I wanted to write this book to say, we need this and there's a way for us to access it without having it be something that closes us down. And so I, I use the frame of imagination to speak about spiritual practice along with the arts as being a path of imagination. And one of the reasons why we're uh, sort of in a pickle here and not feeling so happy about our prospects is that we, we've lost our imaginations. Our imagination has been reduced. And we think imagination is the opposite of reality. Right? Oh, it's just imaginary. It's not real, so it's okay. You know? It doesn't matter. 
imagination has been reduced to the faculty that will produce good content for platforms that can be sold to the public so that we can be entertained and distracted, enjoy ourselves while the people who own the platforms can make a lot of money. And we can't do it if we own stock. That's how we think of imagination now. But in fact, imagination is a reality-seeking function of human beings. It's the source of all idealism. It's the source of love and compassion. And it's the foundation of all of our great religious traditions and all the arts. That's the frame uh, in which I discuss in the book uh, how we all have to be bodhisattvas, working joyfully on behalf of others, practicing the six paramitas. So actually the book is really about the six paramitas, all this other fancy stuff I kind of so let me read you a little bit. I, I forget, what time do we stop? Um, we started around 10 so maybe 11.15. Okay. Okay, so I'll read a little bit. I'm going to start at the beginning. So this is a story about how imagination can change the world even in the worst possible circumstances. It's a story about Robert Desnos, who was a French surrealist poet. A really great poet, an important poet in the French tradition. I think mostly uh, we don't know about him in America. But he was a Jewish person and uh, French, as I said, so uh, it's Nazi times. So he... Uh, is underground fighting for the French resistance and he's captured and sent to the concentration camps. <coughs> so one day, along with many other men, Desnos is crowded onto the bed of one of the trucks that transports prisoners from the barracks. And the men fully understand where they're going. The trucks, every time, leave the barracks full and they return some hours later empty. They're going to the gas chambers and then the ovens. So you can imagine the feeling on this truck bed. Nobody's talking. They can't look at one another. Can you imagine how you would feel riding in that truck? Cheerful telephone. <laughs> Found to be good news, right? <laughs> anyway, back to the horror. Yeah. So anyway, the truck arrives, and you know, very slowly with great reluctance, as if their bodies weighed a thousand pounds, they get off the truck. And the guards, who are always joking and so on, you know, they can't help but feel the mood. And they fall silent too. All of a sudden, this 
mood is abruptly broken when one of the men in the line, one of the prisoners, suddenly twirls around, grabs the hand of the prisoner behind him, puts the palm up to his face, and begins reading the guy's palm. He's apparently a palm reader, and this is Desnos. He's reading the palm of the man behind him, and he gets very animated and very excited, and he says, oh, I never saw such a long lifeline. You're going to have a really, really long life. And look at this. Look at this. You're going to have a lot of children and wealth. I see you're traveling. You're going to be traveling all over the place. <clears throat> I'm so happy for you. And he's thrilled, and he's just hugging the guy, <clears throat> wishing him well. So lucky. And the other prisoners, what? What? <laughs> they don't, I mean, Desnos is so positive and convinced of this. He's like totally serious about this. The other prisoners don't quite know what to make of it. And, and without even sort of knowing what they're doing, they all stick their hands out in Desnos's face <laughs> that he could read their palms too. And he does. He starts reading palm after palm and wouldn't you know it, everyone has this fabulous future full of all kinds of good stuff. And Desnos is beside himself with joy. And, and they also become joyful. I don't know what they're thinking, but somehow or other, in that moment, they believe this. They all believe this, despite everything. And they're really, really happy. And the entire situation changes. It's not exactly what it says here, but... <laughs> but even more astonishingly, the guards are also affected by this. Because like the prisoners, they had been living in a dark spell in which the marching of men to slaughter was a normal and acceptable everyday occurrence. You have to be living in some kind of a spell, right? Or stuff like that to seem like you could, it could happen. But now, all of a sudden, with this absurd and unprecedented palm reading event, the sudden and gratuitous evocation of an alternative reality, the spell that they were all living in is, is broken. And the guards are, frankly, disoriented and confused. Everything is now cast into doubt. And they don't know anymore what's real and what isn't. Is it real, this madness that they've been living every day? They thought it was, but now they're not so sure. Maybe they're better natures, because they were ordinary people, these guards, right? Just like you and me. Maybe they're better natures, long suppressed in an effort to conform to the Nazi madness that defined their world. 
long numb to the grief, the guilt, the horror. Maybe their better natures were stirred by Desnos's powerful commitment to his imaginative vision. Who knows what went on in the minds of the guards? We have no record. We do, however, know that not knowing what to do, the guards looked at one another and shrugged their shoulders and loaded the men back onto the trucks. And the trucks turned around and went back, this time for the first time, full to the barracks. And these people were never executed. Desnos was not executed in the concentration camp. He was liberated, along with many others. Through this spontaneous exercise of imagination, the same kind of imagination that he applied in his poetry, he and these men were saved from execution. Imagination actually is that powerful. As every artist knows, it creates its own self-validating truth strong enough to affect inner transformation and also outer transformation, because inner transformation and outer transformation go together. I mean, in our, in our world, we have this funny idea that there's the inner life and then there's the real world, the outer world, the outer life, and they sort of have nothing to do with each other, kind of. But that's not true. Imagination effects inner and outer transformation. Imagination is essential for our humanness. I remember when I was a boy, I, I had a rabbi that I really loved and telling me, oh, when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to go to the synagogue every Shabbat and hear them read the Torah, because he was like very learned, he came from a very learned family of rabbis, and so he knew that he could understand the Hebrew. And he, he said, I would sit there on the edge of my seat listening to the story. It was so exciting. I couldn't wait every week. Because the Bible really is a great story. And all religious texts come from the human imagination. So do all folk tales, all myths, all rhymes, poems, plays, novels, anecdotes, the music we produce, the ritual, the paintings, even our dreams, all are imaginative project productions that rise up from the deepest place in the heart to expand the soul <coughs> and to help us to feel through who we really are and what the world really is. We need the imagination to move past the one-dimensional perspective of our outer perceptions and our fearful emotions, which are, of course, also a part of us. We, too, are living in a spell, right? A national culture is a kind of spell that's recreated for us every day 
by the conversations we're having with our friends and the newspapers and the streaming, this and that. Imagination is not an escape from reality. It's not a flight from reality. It is a force within us that deepens and enriches reality, adding texture, depth, dimension, feeling, and possibility. The truth is, all that is creative and ennobling in us ultimately sources in the imagination. Without imagination, which would mean without real love, you know, fulfilling our needs is one thing, love is something else, right? We would, we would always work, and we do work, to f fulfill our needs. But if we had a world in which only thing going on was the material world and us fulfilling our various needs, that world is not worth living in. We need the imagination to make the world a human world. To go beyond the possible to the impossible, we need to imagine it first. So, in the, in the opening uh, chapter of the book, <coughs> I try and fail, unfortunately, <laughs> to uh, talk about how the imagination has been understood in our Western culture. You should have written this one, Mato, this chapter. You should have done that and then, uh, at, after that chapter, I, I argue that we need to be bodhisattvas. And bodhisattvas are imaginative creatures. You know, we have to imagine ourselves, in other words. We have to all realize that you are not who you are. You, you are not that person. The person you think you are is a cover story, a necessary and important cover story for the person you actually are, which is a bodhisattva, who was born to save all beings and do good in the world joyfully. That's who you really are. That's whoever human being really is. And so you, everybody needs to be somebody, so you became this person. You were born this person. You have to make use of that position for your bodhisattva mission. So I, I say that, and then I say, how do you, how can you be a, so being a bodhisattva is not just something like you close your eyes and how do you do it, you tap your red shoes three times and spin around and then you're a bodhisattva, no, it actually takes some discipline, it takes some discipline, and so, uh, you know, in Zen practice, it's a serious practice, right, I mean, we're, there's, there's, a lot, there's discipline involved, because, you know, you sit down there a little bit and you realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm really, I'm kind of a mess. <laughs> Actually, if I was honest about it, I'm kind of a mess here, and 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 to overcome this mess, I, I I take some doing. So there's a discipline involved in this, uh, and 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 the discipline involves uh, the path, a path, bodhisattva path. It's a path that you uh, commit yourself to in your own way, and it's very broad, so it can be defined and understood in lots of ways. And in the book, I try to make it as broad as possible. But basically, it's traditionally understood as six practices. Generosity, 
ethical conduct, which means loving, non-harming, patient forbearance, which means the ability to face and practice with tough things that inevitably happen. People think spiritual practice is a nice thing to do. Whoops, life got hard. I can't go to the Zendu anymore because I'm busy. I have troubles, you know? No. It's the opposite. Stay home from the Zendu. Only come when you have problems. <laughs> Which is every day. <laughs> Patient forbearance. The fourth practice is enthusiastic effort. Because spiritual practice is not like you might have learned when you were a child a dutiful slog through all this stuff you're supposed to do and supposed to not do. No, it's a joyful path of effort on behalf of others. It's a wonderful thing to have the chance to be of service to others, to be loving to others. It's a beautiful thing. You feel happy when you do that. So joyful effort, and then the, that's the first four. And the fifth is meditation. And the sixth is transcendent wisdom. Transcendent wisdom, in a word, is the practice of not only thinking that the world could be otherwise. Transcendent wisdom means prajna, means with your eyes you see the world is otherwise. I suggested maybe we should call the book The World Is Otherwise. <laughs> but the publisher said, no, I don't think people would understand that. You know? <laughs> I said, yeah, you're probably right. But the world is otherwise. It is, the world is a totally different world, just like for Desnos, right? Desnos made a different world. For him, apparently in that moment, he understood that the world was not the way it had been defined for him even despite these overwhelming conditions. And you know, I was talking to somebody in the car, I'm sure these stories have not been recorded, and we don't know them. But I'm sure that Desnos was not the only one. I'm sure there were people, probably lots of deeply religious Jews, because many very Orthodox Jews were in the camps and died, I'm sure many of them went to the camps with prayers on their lips and joy in their hearts, even when the tears flowed as they went to their death. In death, this case, death was avoided, but even when it's not avoided, there can be transcendence when you see the world otherwise. And so that's the sixth practice, the most important transcendent wisdom. So in the book I discuss all these practices and, uh, and I try to give some uh, description of the traditional teachings and then I try to extend those teachings to talk about how we would understand them in our time. And then at the end of each chapter I have practices. So the book is meant for Dharma students but also anybody who would be interested and I, I think somebody could um, you know, take the book and say, okay, I'm going to do this and do the practices. But I, I do repeat many times in the book, bodhisattvas can't ever practice alone. This is not like self-help, you do it. You know, this is, we do it. <clears throat> it has to be done. 
together. And realistically, nobody could do this by themselves. It would not be possible. Because when you create your own vision by yourself, and by yourself alone, it's a little bit lunatic, right? You need a shared conversation. Everybody on their own, but everybody together. Anyway, that's, so that's the end of my talk. That's that. Now, uh, maybe if, if you guys have some comments or questions, we can have a conversation for just a minute or two. I guess we're almost out of time. Sorry. But we'll have much more time <coughs> in the afternoon during the workshop. But if there are a few things now, uh, please, I'm really inviting you to uh, say something if you want to. And <coughs> if we go over a little that nobody will do anything to us, right? <laughs> yes, I see your hand in the back, yeah. Thanks for the talk today. I really feel inspired by uh, imagination. And I think it's interesting, too, and I want to get your opinion, because I feel like a lot of practices kind of de-imagining things Oh, yeah. I already have all these imaginations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, 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 right. What the relationship <coughs> is between imagining and de-imagining. Right, right. Good point, yeah, good point. Uh, in what I'm saying this morning, I'm making it very simple. And you're pointing out, of course, it's not so simple. Uh, let's see. I mean, I, I, I actually go into this in this first chapter, and I'm trying to figure out how to respond briefly here without going into the whole story. So... Right. Imagination is the reality-seeking function, but it can also go in the wrong direction, right? Of course, we know. Imagination can be a real problem. And why, what's the difference? Okay, that's the question. What's the difference between the kind of imagination that conceives of a true world and the kind of imagination that conceives of a, a problematic world? And, and the difference is, whether or not we uh, contextualize our practice of imagination in a tradition, in a conversation, shaped by our discipline, spiritual discipline, or whether it's imagination distorted by our desire, our smallness, and our fear. So yes, people have imaginations. They hear someone telling them to get a weapon and go into a the Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California, and shoot people. That's a tremendous act of imagination. One of the greatest acts of imagination ever is the atom bomb. Somebody had to imagine that this was, could be done, and that it was a good idea to do this. These are examples of imagination that we would not validate, that we would say, these come from our fear which we also have, we will always have. These come from our fear and our desire and our inability to love. Right, so imagination needs to be shaped by commitment and by discipline and by spiritual practice. Right. Yes, uh, I don't know your name, but yes, you. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel I have 
have concerns right now and just wanted your perspective on what's happening in our country and how there is no longer the separation of church and state and churches are being used to um, endorse can or you know candidates are going to churches and um, being used to control I think people in ways that you know it's maybe all, it's, it's a newer thing and it's this is my perspective, but I was just curious your thoughts on just what to do. Or it, I mean, religion is such a powerful tool, and yeah, um, or just you know your reflections on that. Yeah. Happy. Well, uh, I'm glad everybody brings up such simple, easy <laughs> <laughs> questions. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Uh, well, here's what I would say. First of all, let's all take a deep breath and realize that we really don't know what's going on. Do we really know? Uh, imagine a big church right now. Is, this, it's, is it Sunday morning? No, it's Saturday morning. Pretend it was Sunday morning. There's a big church right now somewhere in Austin. There's a thousand people in that church. Do we really think we know what's going on in the hearts of that 1,000 people in that church? And when the reporter tells us what's going on in that church, is that really what's going on in that church? Do we know? So, yes, no doubt there are bad things you know, going on and, and efforts to control and pervert people's best interests. But to what extent do people actually fall for that? To what extent is it more various than we think it is? I mean, we don't really know. So I think we really have to honor everyone's best effort at spirituality. We have to be willing to speak to them and imagine that we don't understand entirely and that, and that um, just like we can look at ourselves and we can say, well, you know, there's a lot of sincerity and goodness in me and also I have my own, you know, limitations and meannesses and paranoias and we can imagine others are the same so I think that when we reify the idea, you know, we're, we're told every single day, we read in the paper every single day, this is the most divisive and fractured blah blah you know, and every time we read that and every time we think that we make that so a little bit more right and I'm sure there's something to it but we just make it more and more of a cartoon. You meet a human being, that person is not a cartoon. I don't care who it is and what their ideas are, that person is not a cartoon. And, and I've spent a certain amount of time talking to people in, in those other situations and found that that's really true. People are not cartoons and their views are more complex than you think. You know, most of us I mean, like, just like there are people in Austin who can tell you exactly what's going on here in the Zen Center, right? Who've never been here. <laughs> who will tell you. These people are, and they have a list of things about these people in the Zen Center. And, and to some extent it's true, sort of, but it's not really true because they, these, this list of things is automatically for them negative. We don't think that the things who we are is negative, right? So, in other words, we're mischaracterizing one another right and left, and we have to stop doing that. 
So let's have a generous spirit toward everybody. Let's be able to say, I don't agree with anything that you're saying, but I love you anyway. And let me ask you what you really think. You know, let's, What do you really think? Like, I remember I have one of my dearest friends uh, ever is a rabbi. <laughs> he used to say, people would come to him, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> one of the characteristics of some Jewish people is they really get mad at God, you know. <laughs> I don't think Christians get that mad at God. <laughs> Jewish people often get mad. So people would come in, and they would more or less say to my friend Rabbi Lou, they would complain, they would be mad, you know, and they, about God. And they would, so he would say to them, Tell me about the God that you're mad at. And they would list all these terrible things about God, and they said, I, I don't believe in God. <laughs> and he would say, oh, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> in other words, we have to look deeper at one another. I think that our problems are not as they appear. We're under a spell. We're all living under a spell. And we think, and, and if, we, if I say that, and I say, get out of that spell, then we think, I can't, because then I'll be irresponsible. I won't be political. No, be political, but in a bigger space than the spell that we're all in. So, uh, I think that... <clears throat> Actually, one of the reasons I'm going on here, I have nothing to say, but uh, uh, one of the reasons why, like say, uh, let's say, let's just say, for shorthand, evangelical Christianity, or like uh, very political, right-wing Christianity. One of the reasons why it is the way it is, is because long ago, there was the perception among believers that people who are not like them who didn't believe as they believed didn't respect them and they weren't wrong they weren't wrong there's a lot of people intelligent educated people who thought these people believing in God you know this kind of cartoon God what's wrong with these people they're just a bunch of idiots and you know this registered a lot of people who were believers said, well, boy, you know, who are these people you know, telling us we're, that our belief is stupid? We don't like them. In fact, we really have to, have to not like them if we're going to keep believing. So then, you know what I'm saying? It goes back and forth. It's no, it's, it's not, we can't say that it's them. It's complicated, right? Yeah, I think that intelligent people uh, decided quite a while ago that religion was old-fashioned and was over. So only, only people who were uneducated could possibly be religious. And so then that made religious people quite amenable to a politics that would validate them. And that made religious people, perhaps without thinking too much about it, accept a lot of political positions offered to them by people who seem to be validating their beliefs as opposed to other people who didn't. <clears throat> I read a book about environmental, environmentalism, and it was a book about why is it that despite the science, which has been so clear for 40 years, 
people still don't believe it. And the answer is, I, I'm a believing Christian, or I'm a person who is a farmer over here with a value system. All the people who are telling me about the environmental science are these other people, these other guys who don't know who I am and don't validate my way of life. I'm not believing in them. Do you believe when somebody on the other side, quote-unquote, tells you something? Do you believe in it? Do you believe? No, you don't believe it. I don't believe it. Because the other guys are saying it. How could it be right if they're saying it? That's why they don't believe. Actually, there have been like social science studies that show that that's why, that's why um, people don't believe environmental science. Because they think of it as a cult. Now it's clear. It's a cultural um, characteristic. If you are concerned about the environment, you are known to be within the cultural matrix. And if you're in a different cultural matrix, you don't accept that science. It's kind of crazy, but that's what happens. So we have to think more deeply and challenge ourselves and our own assumptions all the time. Whoops, wait a minute, what am I thinking? Yes? Um, I just want to thank you for bringing um, the topic of imagination um, more to the forefront. Um, and you had started talking about the Holocaust. And um, my husband and my two daughters you know, had relatives that were exterminated. Yeah, me and, too. Yeah, me too. And, but it's, I've just recently been able to, to really understand when I hear, yes, the guards were in that story. They're regular people, yeah. you know, but there's just been a wall. But just uh, maybe, in the, I don't know, even in the last year, to be able to have my imagination really sort of open up to even get that. Or um, recently, the, um, the last um, surviving prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials was in yeah. you know, 60 Minutes. And he just talked about they, those people thought they were doing their patriotic duty. Yes. And I've never even been able to hear that until just this watching yeah. it recently. So I'm just, I'm just thankful that you're bringing up imagination because yeah. that's a, that's a great use of it in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, some of the fascistic currents that are in the air nowadays, right. here and in other places in the world, make you realize, yeah, you could see how people go down that road, yeah, without knowing that they're doing it, yeah. They're still responsible, it's not that they're not responsible, but you can understand better, yeah. And we're all responsible, that's the point. We can't afford to go to sleep. Yes, last thing maybe. You talk in your book a little bit about um, the nature of reality, right? In yeah, the, the nature life. of reality. And, yeah. and, um, Oftentimes, my, my sense, my experience with Buddhism is it's kind of value neutral, but there is kind of a strain of maybe mystical, uh -huh. you know, actually reality is fundamentally very good, very life-affirming, very yeah. positive. And, and yeah. you kind of, it seems like to me, you tap into that, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think the idea that Buddhism is uh, value neutral, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Buddhism is value neutral. I think Buddhism has a set of values. It values compassion, love, non-harming. There is no Buddhism ever existed in the past or the present 
that doesn't have uh, ethical conduct as a key practice, just like it's one of the six paramitas, one of the six practices of bodhisattvas. So ethical conduct, uh, the need to uh, be caring and loving others and be connected to others is a key value of Buddhism. In, in fact, you can even say that um, that is the content of Buddhist awakening, is the understanding. That is what transcendent wisdom sees. It sees that um, you are empty of you. The, 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 the you that you think you are is a kind of elaborately produced illusion. You are empty of that illusion and you are full of connection to all beings. That's what you're full of and you're empty of your selfishness. So that's what the Buddha sees on awakening morning. Uh, my friend who's now deceased, Joanne Kiger, who's a great poet, she has a wonderful line. She says, uh, I am a locus around which bees buzz. Can you picture that? It's like the outline of Joanne Kiger is defined by bees. There's no Joanne. See, there's just the bees buzzing around in the shape of Joanne. And that's you and me. We're empty of ourselves and full of each other. And it's so true, you know? So obviously true. You are in this moment actually, literally, creating the illusion of this person here speaking to you. Right? It's your listening that creates my words. If that's not a value, in other words, that's just description of reality, but embedded in that description of reality is a tremendous sense of responsibility and love for one another. If I'm empty of me and I'm only full of you, I'm concerned about you. It's like, you know, if I fall down and hurt my knee, but my whole body is concerned for the knee. So if you fall down, I'm concerned for you in just the same way. Right? So there's a tremendous sense of caring and responsibility for one another, essential in Buddhist awakening. So I think it's not values. In the beginning, when they were trying to convince everybody about mindfulness, and they were paranoid that somebody would think that they were religious fanatics, they said, this is value-free. We're not trying to tell you. you just, whatever you want to do, you'll do it better if you're mindful. If you want to be a business worker, you can work better if you're mindful. If you want to be a doctor, you'll be better if you're a doctor. If you want to be an assassin, you'll be a better assassin. Oops, they didn't say that part. <laughs> but it's true. You could be a better assassin if you're a mindful assassin. <laughs> right? But actually, mindfulness has ethics to it. It's not value-free. I think we probably should stop now, but I really appreciate everybody's uh, listening and really thoughtful uh, and intelligent responses, so thank you very much. And hopefully uh, we'll reconvene for the workshop, I hope. How could it be that there's not enough room for everybody who wants to come? Why would that be? Because there's not enough seats or something? Or? Um, space. Space? Seat space.
I think we, yeah. we are, I'm, I'm inviting people who really want to come to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my attitude is there's always room for one more, but never. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, I think now we will chant, correct? And we will bow. And we'll be, we will return to our formal, uh, somber Zen attitude. <laughs> Why? Because. This is what many thousands of people who we really respect in the past have done. And when we do it, we will be in solidarity with them, including, I was so moved to see upstairs, Blanche. Blanche and I were co-abbots together at the San Francisco Zen Center and knew each other for 40 or 50 years. And so, when we bow, we'll bow with Blanche and many thousands of other people who have bowed and chanted. What a wonderful thing. Death doesn't even stand between us. Isn't that great? So thank you very much for, for listening. <laughs>